It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Brett Baer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Many Americans have jobs and some savings, but with food and gas prices continuing to rise, how long can we hold out? I think by the end of the year, you know, the bill will be still painfully high, but not quite as high as it is today. An even bigger question looming continues to be, is a recession here? The markets are reacting. When you've lost $11 trillion in the stock market, and that's how big these losses are now, that's a huge hit to American savings and to uh, American companies' balance sheets. So it, it's a very dangerous time for the country. I'm Dave Anthony. Russia keeps bombarding Ukraine. Could China do the same to Taiwan? This is the battle between authoritarian regimes and democracies. That's the battle between China and Russia and the West. Uh, and it's the one we have to stand up to. And I'm Dr. Mark Siegel. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The president keeps telling us the economy is largely good. Unemployment is at 3.6%. American savings accounts after the pandemic are bigger. Americans are spending. And that while inflation hurts, we're in a good position to tackle it. Since I took office, families are carrying less debt. Their average savings are up. A recent survey from the Federal Reserve found that more Americans feel financially comfortable than any time since the survey began in 2013. That was President Biden 10 days ago after the May jobs report. Thing is, while American savings accounts are bigger than they were pre-pandemic, a new Forbes survey finds two-thirds of us admit we're spending our savings, in part to deal with inflation. The first four months of this year, spending was up. In April, retail spending was up nearly a point. But consumer sentiment in June plunged to its lowest level. Charles Payne is the host of Making Money on Fox Business and recently went over some survey results. 87% of people have made an effort to find cheaper prices on products they've 77% have cut back on spending on entertainment or eating out. 74% have put off purchases otherwise planned. 59% of people minimize the use of electricity. 9% of families are skipping a meal, the entire family. A Quinnipiac poll in early June found just 28% support President Biden's handling of the economy. Gas prices are up. The national average for a gallon reached $5 over the weekend. I wasn't able to make it to my second job today. Because of gas prices, that one thing stopped. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, and everyone needs to brace for that. To get to school and home every single day, it's costing us $115 a week. We've been told this will moderate by the end of the year, but we'd also been told inflation was transitory, something Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told Congress last week she'd been wrong about. And the May inflation number was an increase over prior months. A Moody's Analytics analysis found, on average, Americans are paying an extra $460 a month more than they were due to inflation. Yeah, that's right. So if you're a typical household making about a little less than $70,000 a year to buy the same goods and services in May that you did a year ago, you need to spend about $460 more a month. Mark Zandi is chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Just gives you a sense of how painful this inflation is. Mark, how long, um, how long is that going to last? I mean, we just saw the May numbers come out, right? The 8.6% of inflationary 
number from this May compared to last May. It seems like it just keeps going up. We've been told that things are going to moderate by the end of the year, but when you know we're in the middle of the year, we keep seeing it go up. I just want your sense on how long we're looking at being like this. And in a few months, are we going to be talking about not four hundred and sixty dollars, but maybe five hundred dollars or more? I don't think so. I, you know, I think we we are suffering the worst of it now. It goes back to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the spike in oil prices. So it's hard to gauge, you know, exactly which month is going to be the peak. But it feels like the worst is at hand, that uh, those countries that could sanction Russian oil or would sanction Russian oil have already done so. And then we're going to get more supply because at these prices, uh, energy companies, global energy companies can make money. So that would yeah. suggest that oil prices, gasoline prices should level off here over the next few weeks, maybe month or so, and then start to come down towards the end of the year. So I think by the end of the year, you know, the bill will be still painfully high, but not quite as high as it is today. Mark, it feels like the explainers on inflation are very partisan. You know, people who don't like the president say it was the COVID spending, the American Rescue Plan money. People who do like the president say, you know, it's, it's supply chain issues and, and partly Russia's war in Ukraine, demand for gas as, uh, as the pandemic rules eased, OPEC didn't increase production quickly enough. Is it all of it? And if it is, did COVID money likely contribute to this inflation? Uh, well, it has gotten very partisan. Everything's gotten partisan. It's hard to talk about anything when it comes to economics without it feeling partisan. But look, I can tell you my view. It, it, the reason oil prices have gone skyward is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I, I think it's pretty straightforward to connect the dots back to that. But, I mean, ga- paying- but Mark, gas prices were going up, though, well before that. Maybe not at the no, same they, rate, they, no, but they were still look. going up. No, they're going down. Go back to prior. Go back to October, November, uh, December of last year before Russia began beating the drums on the invasion. They were going down. Oil was at seventy dollars a barrel, headed south. It wasn't headed north. And then Russia came on the radar screen beginning in December. You know that's when uh, the at least global oil traders took notice of it. The average American didn't, but the global oil traders certainly took to great notice of it. Oil prices started to rise back in mid to late December. So uh, go to Google, put in Fred oil prices, and you can see you know seventy bucks a barrel. Actually, it was below that you know in the early parts of December. Okay, but I'm looking now at AAA November of 2021. Three dollars thirty nine cents a gallon was the average in November twenty twenty one. That was a dollar twenty seven more than a year prior. Yeah, but a year prior we were in yeah. the middle of a pandemic. Three thirty nine is kind of back to your typical pre pandemic level, right? I mean, you, you wouldn't expect prices not to normalize. Every, all prices normalized because they got hammered and crushed. We shut down the economy. No one was driving, so you would expect the oil and gas prices to be down compared to that. But pre pandemic, they you know three bucks a, a gallon, three fifty a gallon. That kind of typical, right? That sounds great now. <laughs> it certainly sounds great now. Um, Take it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, we still keep hearing about this labor shortage, that there's roughly, I think, more than 11 million jobs, right? 11.4 or some available jobs and just 6 million unemployed people. Um, the labor force participation rate is still below where it was before the pandemic. And yet now we're hearing about layoffs, partly because of inflation, Netflix, Carvana, what do we do with this? If, if filling those vacant jobs was going to help the economy, and now we're talking about layoffs, I mean, that really makes you start to talk about the word recession more. Uh, I guess. Uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, look, 
this is by design, right? Again, going back to the Fed, the Fed is raising interest rates, normalizing, getting back to like pre-pandemic levels in an effort to slow the economy's growth. That means that there's got to be fewer unfilled open positions. That means that layoffs, which are incredibly low. In fact, with all the layoffs you just announced, the level of layoffs is incredibly low by any historical standard. So you got to get that back to something that's more typical. Unemployment is very low at 3.6%. So it's about slowing down the growth rate in the economy so we don't blow past full employment. We don't get unemployment into the low threes or high twos, because if that happens, then wage and price pressures will become worse. Inflation will become more of a, a, a persistent problem and debt problem. It won't just be about higher oil prices and Russia's evasion or global supply chains. It'll be something more fundamental, something more persistent, bigger problem. But uh, and, and that's by design. So I think everyone should recognize that those unfilled positions, they're going to come down from those record highs, that those layoffs that are record lows are just going to start to rise, that this incredibly amazing labor market that's given people opportunities to take jobs that they couldn't have otherwise is certainly not going to be that way six, 12 months from now. It just can't be because the economy couldn't support that in the long run. We've already seen the Fed raise rates and they're expected to do so again. But economists like former Trump economic advisor Stephen Moore are also paying attention to what Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says this week about the road ahead and any hints or indicators he may give about rate hikes for the rest of the year, as well as any talk about recession. Well, it's a strange economy right now because we've got the collapse in consumer confidence and obvious, the obvious collapse in investor confidence, and that's why investors are selling their stocks. And yet, you know, you still have a fairly robust and strong jobs market out right there. There's about 10 million open jobs in this economy. So that's the good news. The bad news is that we've got this surging inflation that is running way faster than wages. So workers are becoming poorer and I'm very nervous that this positive jobs market could really go south on us and we could see a lot of businesses really struggling and failing. And and then, you know, we would be in a recession because a recession uh, means that you're losing jobs. You're losing a lot of income for people. And when you've lost 11 trillion dollars in the stock market and that's how big these losses are now, that's a huge hit to American savings and to uh, American companies' balance sheets. So it, it's a very dangerous time for the country. $11 trillion over the year? Over what period of time? Over the year. That's right. Okay. Obviously, I'm not an economist, but I, I'm having trouble understanding why, and the Fed is meeting today, why raising rates is the right course of action to deal with this kind of inflation that we're seeing. Is it because it's just the only real tool? Because it, it seems like it will cool off the economy, right? It will discourage at least borrowing. But if this inflation is due to a myriad of things, including like supply chain issues or Russia's war in Ukraine, then how is raising rates the answer? Well, that is something I disagree with uh, in terms of, you know, the explanation of inflation. What Biden says, it's due to Ukraine and it's due to supply chain problems. Again, you don't have to have a degree in economics to understand that when you have more and more money flowing into the economy, that that's going to cause inflation. And so you're right that it, it takes more than just the Fed raising interest rates, although it's going to have to do that right now. It also requires policies that encourage businesses to produce more goods and services. You know, there's an old saying, when the, when the amount of apples produced goes up, then prices of apples goes down. So we need to produce more oil and gas in this country. We need more production. We need, what we ought to be doing is looking at ways that we can encourage 
people to get back to work uh, and also by encouraging businesses to increase their production by reducing the taxes that they pay. So I think those policies could bring inflation down in a way that wouldn't wreck the economy. But I'm not hearing any of those policies coming out of this of, of this Biden administration. In fact, everything Biden has said over the last three or four months has been essentially doubling down on the failed progressive policies that put us in this box in the first place. It, it seems like if you raise rates, well, I don't know. I, that's why we have. Uh, well, look, raising- I, I take your point that, you know, raising interest rates, you're, you're right. That's going to actually slow down the economy because it means the price of a mortgage or the price of consumer debt or any borrowing is increased. And so you need to have policies at the same time that are uh, that are not going to slow down the economy. So, for example, if Joe Biden were to say, hey, we're going to uh, allow more drilling in this country, we're going to start building pipelines. I'm just taking one example. Well, that, that's more workers working. That's more production here in the United States that'll lower the price of oil and gas. And unfortunately, we don't have those policies in place uh, right now. But, Stephen, the tools the Fed have, those are limited, right? Like, they, there's only so much the Fed can do. That's your point, right? The policy needs to go in hand in hand with whatever the Fed does. That's and if right. the Fed can only right. do so much, like raise rates, even if that's not like the ideal solution right now, because you do want people to not feel so tight. Right. If, if everybody pulls well, back yeah. on their spending and they can't afford a mortgage, if borrowing slows and your spending slows on your vacations or your electronics or whatever, then is that too tight? Is that too much of a pullback at once? Well, it's a very good question. That's what economists are asking. And that's what the Fed is asking themselves. You know, do we want to have this shock therapy? Now, I'll mm-hmm. go back to this, uh, you know, analogy I used earlier. Inflation is like a cancer cell, right? And you don't want to allow that cancer cell to metastasize. So we need now a kind of chemotherapy. And is that going to be painful? Yeah, sure it is. But the alternative is to let this inflation get worse and worse. You know, in the 1970s, we started with 3 and 4% inflation, and then it turned to 6% inflation, and then 7 and then 9 and then, you know, it, it hit 11 and then even 12%. And it just got worse and worse and worse, and we didn't deal with it. And we had a gut-wrenching recession in 19. 1982, as we finally, under Paul Volcker, pulled the money out of the economy. Now, that caused a lot of misery, no question about it. But then we did uh, have, with Reagan, you know, an, a seven, eight-year boom in the economy after we got the inflation down. So I'm afraid we're going to have to take some drastic steps to get inflation down. And the Fed should keep its eye on one thing right now, and that is get inflation down from 8.5% to 2.5%. They have to. Economist Steve Moore, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is Dr. Mark Siegel with your Fox News commentary coming right up. For more than three months, Ukraine has taken a lead role on the world stage after Russia invaded. But there's growing concern China 
could do something similar. We've witnessed a steady increase in provocative and destabilizing military activity near Taiwan. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at a summit in Singapore over the weekend where he met with his Chinese counterpart. Taiwan considers itself independent. China sees the island as part of its country and warns it would go to war to keep it. China is our greatest challenge, in many ways the most profound test that CIA has ever faced. That's CIA Director William Burns, who told a Georgia Institute of Technology forum in April. It seeks to overtake us in literally every domain, from economic strength to military power and from space to cyberspace. Congressman Mike Turner agrees China is a big threat. China has declared itself to be both an adversary of the United States and our allies. From Ohio, Turner is the lead Republican on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. They have specifically declared their intention to, um, even as they just met with uh, Secretary Austin uh, in the past several days, to um, uh, to be aggressive, to threaten war. And uh, you know they've threatened Australia, they've threatened the United States, and certainly you know, now with their declarations of that the Taiwan Straits, which are international waters, uh, might not by them can be considered international waters, and their statements of willing to go to war over Taiwan, it certainly shows that uh, the things are, are, are heating up and uh, that their aggressive posture is a threat to the United States and our allies. You know, when President Biden was in Asia, he was asked what would happen if China invaded Taiwan? Would the U.S. get involved militarily? He said yes. That created a big stir. Then the White House said no, policy hasn't changed toward Taiwan. What did you think of all that? Well, I think it's very consistent with this president and that, that he... Frequently, in the same comments or remarks, he'll conflict himself, and then he'll say things that his staff needs to clean up, which really gives us you know, great concern as to who's in charge and, and what's happening at the White House. And you know, with his background and experience, having been vice president, um, his service in the Senate and the Foreign Affairs Committee, he certainly understands these issues, has experienced these issues, uh, but he certainly is struggling these days to articulate any uh, understandable U.S. policy. You know, President Trump made it a very big deal during his time in office, the trade battle with China, the tariffs he imposed. They have not really been lifted by the Biden administration, though last week the Treasury Secretary said that they were considering changing some of those because they thought they were punitive on American companies and American consumers. Where are we on the trade battle with China? Yeah, and this is one of those instances where, you know, obviously – um, you know, the Biden administration doesn't really understand what tariffs are for. Tariffs are to protect American industry. Uh, what happens is, is that when you find that, the, that, that China is underselling um, products into the United States, which means, you know, times below the cost, below the cost of producing them and, and, uh, and uh, transferring them here, you know, and they do so for a competitive advantage to try to weaken American industry. And so when those unfair trade practices have been identified, then you can impose tariffs which the, the, the president uh, did, President Trump, re- repealing those won't roll those uh, prices all the way back to the pre-tariff levels. Actually, those those companies then, the Chinese have the ability to raise their prices because the tariff is, is removed, and then they're still under the cost that, that would be competitive for American uh, businesses and American jobs. So it, it actually it devastates American industries. It doesn't help anybody. Later this month, President Biden will go back to Europe for G7 and NATO summits, with a lot of the focus on helping Ukraine fend off Russia's invasion. Earlier this month, President Volodymyr Zelensky said, As of now, nearly 20% of our territory 
is under the control of occupiers. The other day, Zelensky addressed the same Asian summit Defense Secretary Austin attended, urging countries to also help Taiwan to stop China now. Don't wait for an invasion. Well, I have served as the president of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly and actually addressed the the Warsaw uh, NATO summit. And, and I know that, that when they're preparing for this one, they have a number of things on their agenda. But I'm very hopeful, and I've spoken to the Deputy Secretary General of NATO about this issue, that while they're dealing with Ukraine and they're going to adopt at this NATO summit a new strategic plan and hopefully um, begin the process of admitting uh, Finland and Sweden, they need to take up the issue of China. This cannot be totally a Russia-focused summit. Uh, it certainly has to be um, a, a strong statement with respect to, to Russia and a strong position of all of the NATO allies. They've done excellent in the, in the post-Biden uh, you know, delay in getting weapons in, rising to the challenge together with all the allies sending weapons in to allow them to defend themselves. They need to continue that with an understanding uh, that, that Russia has made it clear that, again, back to believing our adversaries, that it's not just that he wants a little nick off of Ukraine, which Biden had said he thought would be okay. It's not that he just that he wants all of Ukraine. He wants all of Eastern Europe, and he wants uh, Scandinavia, too. And he has openly said so, and we need to defend ourselves, put ourselves in a posture to prevent that, um, because basically this, this is the battle between authoritarian regimes and democracies. That's the battle between China and Russia and the West, uh, and it's the one we have to stand up to. Ukraine in recent weeks has really taken a beating in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass region, where Russia continues to to gain more ground. Ukraine says they're running out of ammunition and they need more help. And it's looking a little worse by the day. What can be done to help turn that around, if anything? Well, you know, one of the things that I fought for that we were able to accomplish was increased intelligence sharing with, with the Ukrainians so they actually know where the Russians are. So they know what they're facing and they have an ability to defend themselves. Uh, secondly, is to provide them the advanced weapon systems to be able to defend against the Russian incursions. We've got some of the weapons in. They're now asking for longer range. It probably should have been there beforehand. The Biden administration is in the process of giving it to them. Um, those are areas in which we can, we can assist. But the one thing that we need to know and, and understand fully, is just as Crimea was not the end of Russia aggression and Russia causing wars in Europe, uh, whatever happens in eastern Ukraine is not going to be the end either. Uh, this is something that's going to be continuing uh, and that we need to make certain that we oppose, that we give them the ability uh, to fight Russia because those tanks and those weapons are going to be turning the, the direction further west uh, if, if we don't stand up with Ukraine and against Russia now. You think China's taking notes? You know, everyone believes they want Taiwan. Have they been watching the way the world came together to fight, to try to help Ukraine fight off Russia? Do you think that they've taken note that what would happen if the world did that for Taiwan? It's interesting because, you know, as you just said, it was certainly surprising, I think, to Russia and to both to China uh, that the world uh, coalesced. Uh, you know, when we had boats in the United Nations, when we looked at uh, NATO, when we looked at the worldwide debate, even among worldwide journalists and, and leaders, there was around the world condemnation of Russia attempting through its strength to adjust borders and to and, and killing innocent people, just the, the atrocities, the bombing of residential areas, the killing of innocent civilians. Um, I, I do think that that does have some effect on China. But as you've noticed, their rhetoric has actually gotten more inflammatory, not less. So I do think they feel frustrated by this. 
Uh, they feel frustrated because in, in, their, in the authoritarian regime's calculus, if they are strong, they are winning. And if they are strong, uh, they believe no one will stand up against them. Uh, in this instance, uh, Russia and China are seeing everyone is standing up against them. And uh, that is something I don't think they expected. Now we take a turn to focus on two big issues here at home. First, the House committee probe into last year's Capitol riot. A hearing yesterday focused on former President Trump. He ignored the will of the voters. He lied to his supporters and the country. And he tried to remain in office after the people had voted him out. Democratic Committee Chairman Benny Thompson, there are two more hearings this week after the one that was on primetime TV last week. Like many Republicans, Congressman Turner's not been watching. I have not. But if you, if you notice, if you just look at the rhetoric that's coming out of it, I mean, they, they started off saying that the president tried to overthrow the country. Then they went to the president planned an insurgency. Uh, then he then they went to the president incited them. Now they're two. He didn't stop them. Um, they, they have no smoking gun. Uh, we all saw what happened on, on January 6th. Um, and unfortunately, this is just their effort to continue, um, you know, Adam Schiff um, playing the, uh, you know, let's let's beat the drum against Donald Trump. What's interesting is, is, you know, Adam Schiff goes on national television this last weekend and says, I believe that we have enough for the Department of Justice to in- open an investigation of Donald Trump. Now, he doesn't say that I believe Donald Trump has committed crimes because that would be defamatory. One of the basic uh, tenets of, of defamation. He doesn't have that evidence. He didn't say it, uh, but yet it's played all over the, all over the, the media um, as if, you know, there's, there's some smoking gun. But Adam Schiff has called for Donald Trump to be prosecuted um, ever since Donald Trump was even a candidate. And he's just continued to beat that drum. I think the American public see this as more of the same. Your thoughts on what's happening in the Senate. There's this bipartisan agreement that's emerged on gun control, a proposed legislation. Not exactly what Democrats want, but Democrats think Republicans have given them something here in this. What do you think of it? Well, I think there's a lot more bipartisanship that, that, that happens than, than, people, than people realize. But it's certainly not coming from the Biden administration. And th- this really shows you um, that, that there is a dialogue, there is camaraderie in Congress, both on the Senate side and the House side. Uh, certainly the Nancy Pelosi's of the world and the Joe Biden's of the world don't want that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi always brings the most partisan bills to the floor, even after they even when bipartisan bills pass the, the Senate. She always brings it to the House with something else in it that uh, to, to make it partisan and to, to split the vote. OK, the so- Biden, Biden administration where, where where the president took, you know, his inaugural address to say he was going to be a uniter has done everything but that. Uh, this, I think, though, does show that there is leadership in Congress and there is leadership that does have a bipartisan voice. Okay. So do you think that the bill, if it passed the Senate as it is, would also pass the house or no? If Nancy Pelosi brings it to the floor as it, as it is written in the Senate, which is, which she's very, very hesitant to do usually. And usually she only brings uh, bills to the floor that have her own imprint on them. And that there, there are, you know, include left wing principles from her squad um, if she brings it to the floor after passing the, the Senate, uh, I believe that there would be strong support in the House for a bill like this. And, and you think Republicans would go along? I think it will be. I think it will pass on a bipartisan basis in the House if it passes on a bipartisan basis in the Senate. Republican Congressman Mike Turner from Ohio. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you. Take care.
power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Dr. Mark Siegel. Dr. Mark Siegel. What's on your mind? Lest you think the baby formula shortage occurred overnight or as an isolated problem, think again. Baby formula is just the tip of the supply chain shortage iceberg. Insulin, for example, is a far more chronic problem with deeper roots and is just as life-threatening. As with baby formula, the problem starts with big pharma territoriality, where the definition of chemicals is narrow and the level of competition is insufficient. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, when he was FDA commissioner, took a big step in adding biosimilars and generic versions of older drugs to the insulin market, but these efforts have thus far proven insufficient to keep prices down or ensure sufficient product. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there are 37.3 million people with diabetes in the U.S., which is 11% of the U.S. population. An additional 96 million over the age of 18 have pre-diabetes. 7.4 million Americans with diabetes use one or more formulations of insulin, and this number is growing. Unfortunately, the insulin supply is not growing, just the opposite, in fact. The FDA announced just before the pandemic started in February 2020 that there was going to be a drug shortage, including insulin, due to the initial COVID outbreak in China. Insulin prices have skyrocketed 600% in the past 20 years, and at least three states, California, Washington, and Maine, have been passing legislation with the intention of producing their own insulin, as has Civica Rx, a consortium of healthcare providers, insurers, and philanthropists. In March, the House of Representatives passed the Affordable Insulin Now Act, which would limit the cost of insulin to $35 per month for Americans with health insurance. I supported this act, though the bill has yet to pass the Senate. The Democracy Policy Network has suggested publicly owned pharmaceutical enterprises that that bypass big pharma and develop medicines in the public interest, including insulin. The insulin supply chain involves the delivery of insulin to patients and the flow of payments back. There are multiple middlemen that clog up the chain and the monopolies of the three major companies involved, Novo Nordisk, Sanofi, and Eli Lilly is part of the problem, as it is with baby formula. The solution is multifaceted, and it includes more generics, biosimilars, public production, Federal Reserve, management algorithms, and slow replacement of insulin with newer drugs, which both help control diabetes and also decrease hunger and weight, a handy twofer, which decreases insulin requirements. The new Lilly drug, Trisepatide is very promising in this regard, but of course, there will be shortage of these drugs too. A similar drug, Wagovi, made by Novo Nordisk, is already in short supply, and many insurances are not routinely covering them. Another possible and exciting approach includes the latest in stem cell biotechnology, where canine stem cells are manipulated into becoming insulin-producing cells. Unfortunately, clinical application of this technology is likely still years away. In the meantime, the likelihood of a worsening insulin shortage is high. Quality control concerns, few manufacturers, and expense are earmarks shared with the baby formula crisis. 
Dr. Mark Siegel, Fox News. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.